Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this event um, organised on behalf of the Department of Government and uh, British Government at LSE. My name is Professor Paul Kelly and I'm Head of the Government Department. Our speaker, Harriet Harman, is a familiar figure from British Government and politics. Harriet is, I should say this first, because this is actually really important. She's MP for Camberwell and Peckham. That shouldn't be at the bottom of the list. That's the first and most important thing. She was a solicitor, counsel for the National Council for Civil Liberties, and an MP since 1982. And she's been an important figure in Labour Party politics under all leaders since Neil Kinnock. In the Blair and Brown governments, she achieved ministerial and cabinet rank as excuse the list, Secretary of State for Social Security, Solicitor General, Minister of State in the Department of Constitutional Affairs, Leader of the House of Commons, Lord Privy Seal, Minister of State for Women and Equality, and also becoming Deputy Leader of the Labour Party. With Labour out of office, she served a very successful period as Acting Leader until the election of uh, Ed Miliband in September, and under Mr Miliband she's continued to serve as Deputy Leader of the Labour Party and Shadow Deputy Prime Minister. She's also Shadow Secretary of State for International Development, and it's in the latter capacity, in that last capacity, that she's speaking to us tonight. And the topic of Harriet's talk is going to be Growing the Age Budget at a Time of Deficit Reduction, Moral Imperative or Political Challenge. Ladies and gentlemen, Harriet Harman, MP. Uh, thanks very much indeed. Um, it's a pleasure to see you all here tonight and to be at the London School of Economics where great work has been done over decades on international development and also over decades so many students from all over the world have come here to study. And I want to say a particular thank you to Paul Kelly and to the British Government at LSE initiative which we are clearly going to hear more of. Uh, thank you for hosting this event tonight. Uh, your initiative that you set up is extremely timely. Uh, it was established only recently following the general election. I, I'm sure when you had it in the planning, you never realized that the British people would give you so much uh, to study. Um, and it's good to know that it's not just us who are keeping a hawk eye on the government and we'll compare notes as things go along. Uh, scrutiny is exactly what's needed uh, when we see only today that two million pounds of DFID money is being used, being given over to the Foreign Office to pay for the Pope's state visit to the UK last year. We're demanding that the FCO pay that money back to DFID. Um, I'm delighted to be taking, talking to you tonight in my new role, as Paul said, as Shadow Secretary of State for International Development. Um, and as Paul said, my constituency of Camberwell and Peckham is my and every other member of Parliament's base. Um, we're not a minister, we're not anything in Parliament or government uh, without we actually represent our constituents. And my constituency in Camberwell and Peckham, just over the river, has the biggest um, African diaspora community uh, anywhere in the United Kingdom, from Sierra Leone, from Ghana, from Nigeria, from Tanzania, from Kenya, uh, from all over uh, Africa in particular. So development is always and has always been a major constituency issue for me. 
but the Labour Party's commitment to playing our part in tackling poverty in developing countries through overseas aid is a historic one at the heart of Labour's values. As long ago as 1969, the Labour Party was committed to the 0.7% target. When in 1969 the Pearson Commission, established under the initiative of the World Bank, proposed for the first time a target for official development assistance to reach 0.7% of GNP, the Labour Party backed that 0.7% target and we put it in our 1970 manifesto. So we're not Johnny-come-latelys on this. But that commitment was not matched by the Conservatives, quite the opposite. And when the Tories were in government, ODA as a percentage of gross, gross national income fell by half between 1979 and 1997 from 0.51% to 0.26%. So that's the kind of sort of historical background. We came back into government in 1997 on a manifesto which committed us to reverse this decline, and indeed we did, trebling aid and increasing it from the 0.26% up to 0.56%. And in 2004, in the run-up to the Glen Eagles Summit, Prime Minister Tony Blair and the then-Chancellor Gordon Brown put a time frame on our 0.7% pledge, committing to reaching it by 2013. Whilst it has to be said that the Liberal Party and then the SDP and then the Lib Dems had always traditionally supported the 0.7% pledge. The Conservative Party can't say the same. But it was only later, in 2005, that they, the Conservatives, matched our pledge by signing up to the 2013 deadline, which they then put in their 2010 general election manifesto. The coalition agreement reiterated the pledge, along with a commitment to legislate to make it a binding legal obligation on government. So whilst this is a long-standing, firm commitment for us, and one we have stuck to through good times and bad, it is a recent commitment for the Tory party, and one which now in government, they are taking forward at the same time as they're embarking on a programme of public spending cuts which aim to see the deficit eliminated by 2015. They have ring-fenced the DFID budget, at the same time as they're making every unprotected government department cut on average 19%. So that position, setting the DFID budget apart from the process of deficit reduction, has been emphatically reinforced and re reaffirmed on many occasions by both the International Development Secretary, Andrew Mitchell, and also Prime Minister David Cameron. And though, of course, we remain committed to that pledge, it obviously started off as being our pledge, it's not controversial for us, but it is controversial within the Tory party and has been publicly criticised by Tory backbenchers. And it is a very strange situation at the moment at um, DFID questions, oral questions in the House of Commons. You have Andrew Mitchell at the dispatch box of Secretary of State and all his backbenchers behind him. And you have me and my team on the opposition benches and our backbenchers behind us. 
and Andrew Mitchell's backbenchers attack him and we support him. It's a very strange situation. But even before they got into government and before the scale of their deficit reduction became clear, of the Tory candidates in their 220 most winnable seats, a poll showed that 96% of them thought the aid budget should not be protected, let alone increased. So that's, that's the backdrop which is making the Conservative MPs not too pleased with the, shadows, with the Secretary of State. And it wasn't just confined to the Tory candidates who then became MPs. 70% of Tory party members who were surveyed described the rise in the aid budget as the wrong decision. That hostility is reinforced by campaigns and editorials in Tory supporting newspapers. Quotes, no time for posturing on international development is what the Daily Mail says. Quotes, the Tory aid pledge is ill-conceived gesture politics, and that's what the Sun says. So with the Tory party commitment to the 0.7% 2013 pledge being fragile, with the opposition from within their own ranks so virulent, with growing public anger about the effects of the cuts on domestic priorities, alongside a significant and growing public belief that charity begins at home, I don't think any of us who believe in and are strongly committed to that pledge should take it for granted that the Tories will inevitably deliver on that pledge. The fact that the two parties of the coalition government and the official opposition all agree on this target should not lull anyone into a false sense of security that its achievement is a foregone conclusion. So we can't simply sit back and wait for the pledge to be honoured. We must remake our arguments for it. It's time for a keep the 0.7% 2013 promise campaign, not a catchy title, I admit, but it is time for such a campaign. And with the help of the Labour Campaign for International Development, we'll be launching it in a few weeks' time. And I'm sure that we can look to many, many young people. We can look to the churches, the aid agencies, and our diaspora communities to support such a campaign. And indeed, to all those who did so much to campaign for the original promise and so strongly backed the actions our government took to increase aid and drop debt. Remaking the argument, our strongest argument is surely that as the 20th wealthiest country in the world out of 182 and the sixth biggest economy, we cannot and should not stand by when elsewhere in the world people are starving and dying of preventable diseases when we can stop that happening. For all the inequality that still exists in our own country and for all that some people in this country still have to struggle, the life of those in poverty in the developing world is a world away. Like the woman I met in India who proudly showed me, proudly showed me her newborn baby that she'd just given birth to on an earth floor. As Claire Short, our first International Development Secretary when we came into government, said in the forward to her first white paper in 1997, it is our duty to care about other people, in particular those less well-off than ourselves. 
We all have a moral duty to reach out to the poor and the needy. So our starting point is that of our common humanity. This is not either just a matter for the generosity of individuals, for philanthropy, for charity. It's not just the matter for individuals who contribute to charities and through the money that migrants to this country send back home through remittances to their country of origin. It is also the role of government. It's right that the government should embody the values and match the efforts of its people. The capacity for public generosity is evident in the high level of commitment to organisations such as Oxfam and Christian Aid and was clearly shown once again by the flood of donations after the Haiti earthquake and the terrible Pakistan floods. When people are contributing out of their own personal income, they don't expect their government to stand by and do nothing. And our government, taking a leading role in development aid, on development aid, as Tony Blair and Gordon Brown did in the run-up to the Glen Eagles Summit, ensured not just that we played our part, but ensured that other countries increased their aid and that more, therefore, became available to tackle poverty. Government aid can, in a way that charitable donations don't, support long-term infrastructure projects which are vital to building the financial independence which ultimately lessens reliance on aid. Alongside the moral case for development aid, it is certainly the case that it is in our own national self-interest. Aid fosters the economic growth that enlarges the world market in which we trade. Underdevelopment is a restraint on the global economy. Poverty fosters conflict which spills over into regional and global insecurity. Poverty drives global migration as people feel that to have a chance of a better future for themselves and their family, they have to flee their home. Development aid plays its part in helping protect against the impact of climate change and prevents people losing their homes and livelihoods and becoming refugees who have to flee. A good relationship of mutual trust and respect between a donor and recipient country can and does become a productive trading relationship as the country moves out of poverty and becomes a middle-income country. Our government's aid is important not just to encourage other countries to do the same, but because other countries have aid budgets, and if we pull back on our aid, our influence will be commensurately less. Above all, development aid that alleviates poverty is a vital part of moving towards what I think is the objective here, which is towards global equality and tackling the unacceptable inequality which lies between countries and within countries. Global inequality is not just wrong in principle, it threatens economic and social stability, as was pointed out by the IMF's managing director and has been highlighted at the current World Economic Forum in Davos, which has cited inequality as one of their top five issues for 2011. So despite the consensus across the three main parties on our 0.7% 2013 aid target, the protests against it have grown louder, and we need to challenge those arguments. Some argue that now is not the time to increase international aid because the world is struggling to recover from the global financial crisis. 
But that is the very reason that this is not the moment to step back from our aid commitments. The financial crisis, rising food and fuel prices are hitting the development, developing world hard. We must not let our recovery from the global financial crisis be the justification to precipitate a crisis of even greater need in the developing world. It is not the case, also as is sometimes said, sometimes indeed from the Tory backbenches, that aid doesn't work. Uh, Bill and Melinda Gates' campaign, Living Proof, and organisations like the One campaign have shown that aid helped African countries put 34 million children through school between 1999 and 2006 and helped halve malarial death rates in countries like Rwanda and Ethiopia. It is not the case either that aid traps countries in dependency, that's another argument that's put forward, and somehow prevents them establishing their own growth and financial independence. Historically, one of the countries where our aid has played a vital part in poverty reduction is India, which has now moved from being a poor country to a middle-income country notwithstanding the fact that there are still many, many people in India uh, suffering from very high levels of poverty, more indeed than there are in the whole of sub-Saharan sub Africa. But far from fostering dependence, aid helps countries develop their infrastructure and the institutions which are the building blocks for financial independence, and it helps countries to resolve conflicts which are an obstacle to prosperity and development. Nor is it the case that the problems that aid seek to alleviate are never-ending. Aid has helped not just reduce the incidence of smallpox, but eradicate it completely. We need now to do the same with polio. Where aid helps countries move out of poverty, it lessens and then ends their need for aid. Uh, nor do we accept the argument that our focus is only the money that goes into the aid budget, paying no attention to what it achieves. You'd have probably heard the argument, you know, it's all about input, what about the output? That's the problem. You're pouring money in, but it's not delivering anything. We have always argued, as Claire Short did in 1999, that, and I quote, we need to turn the development efforts of the international community from an obsession with inputs and generalised rhetoric about poverty to a clear focus on outputs and year-on-year -year measurement of effectiveness in reducing poverty against our agreed targets and each and every country. And indeed, that was the spirit that lay behind the Millennium Development Goals, which alongside the target for aid growth to 0.7% were about the outcomes that we want to see. We don't disagree with those who point out that corruption in trade or aid is a problem. It's a crime, not just against those for whom the aid is destined, but also against those who give the aid, UK taxpayers. That's why our aid programme places a great emphasis, it always has done, on transparency and accountability in aid, and rightly so, and why, when we can't trust the capacity of the government, we gave money directly to those on the ground, and we helped back up the police and criminal justice agencies, and, if it still does, um, in countries like Nigeria, who are battling against fraud and corruption. And that is why we are disappointed and angry that the government has revealed this week that it's again delaying the implementation of the Bribery Act, which we passed 
uh, with their support when we were in government and which was due to come into force in October last year. Now, despite the government's commitment to UKA reaching 0.7% of GNI by 2013, the spending review statement of last October froze the aid budget as a percentage of GNI for the next two years. The cost of this two-year freeze, instead of continuing the upward trend that we established when we were in government, is £2.2 billion, which would otherwise have been available in development aid. The loss of this £2.2 billion is not insignificant. It would, for example, have paid for 50 million children to be vaccinating been vaccinated, helping to protect them from five diseases, including diphtheria, and 200 million mosquito nets, which could help save the lives of over half a million children and protect even more from illness, and the treatment of all children with pneumonia in the world's poorest countries, which could save 600,000 children lives a year, and helping 8 million school children in Africa. And now that will not happen because of the aid freeze. Uh, of 2.2 billion foregone. Abandoning the steady progress towards the 2013 target, instead of building on the progress that was made when we were in government, will require a big jump in the aid budget in two years' time in order to meet the target. Following the two-year aid freeze, to meet their promised target of 0.7% by 2013, they will need to boost the aid budget by 31% in a single year, an increase of approximately 3 billion in 2013. And remember, this is at a background, against a background, as, as I've said, of other unprotected departments being cut by 19%. So we've got a 19% cut in departments like the Home Office, Transport, and we've got now, in order to meet the target, the need for a 31% increase in 2013. It's all the more important, therefore, that the government introduce legislation for a legally binding obligation of 0.7% by 2013, as they promised in their manifesto and reiterated in the coalition agreement. Now, the bill to enact this commitment was drafted when we were in government and has been through pre-legislative scrutiny both in the House of Commons and in the House of Lords. The government have a long parliamentary session. They've set themselves a long parliamentary session for their first parliamentary session to bring in this short but important bill, which has cross-party agreement. Bringing in this legislation would provide reassurance and put beyond doubt that the 0.7% 2013 promise will be delivered. By the same token... The government's failure to bring it forward only fuels concern. They want to leave open the option to fall short of the 0.7% or delay the 2013 target date and the 31% budget increase that it will require. The aid agencies, churches, diaspora communities, all are calling for the introduction of the bill and we are backing them in that demand. If the government fails to bring it forward in this parliamentary session, it will no doubt be the most obvious choice 
for a private member's bill to be brought forward by a backbencher at the start of the next session. And part of the Keep the 0.7% 2013 campaign must be to build up that level of, of backing so that whoever, whichever MP comes top of the private member's ballot, they know that everybody is waiting, forward to waiting for them to bring forward this ready-made short bill with cross-party support. Although I focus my comments today on our concern that the 0.7% 2013 pledge must be honoured, there is no doubt that aid is only one of the tools that we must use to make the world less unequal. We must also tackle unfair trade and reform unfair tax systems. And our task will not just be what the UK does, but the UK playing its role in leading international action to make the world fairer. Tackling global inequality is not about charity, it's about rights. It's not about philanthropy, it's about justice. For our part, uh, Labour's shadow DFID team, uh, which as well as myself is Mark Lazarevich MP, Rushnara Ali MP from Bethnal Green and Bow, and Baroness Glenis Kinnock, um, for our part we will do everything we can to make sure that the government keeps faith with the 0.7% 2013 promise which we made and they matched. They must keep faith with the promise they made to the British people at the general election and Britain must keep faith with our moral duty to the poor of the world. Thank you. Right, we have plenty of time for questions. Can I ask that you indicate clearly, as some of you are already doing, but wait until a microphone comes to you. Um, and can I also request that you keep your questions within modest terms and, and make sure they are questions rather than sort of statements or, or so gentleman in the middle first okay. could I make a little request as well without invading your personal privacy if you could just tell us a little bit about Introduce yourself and okay. your life story okay uh, I'm Pete Bealey uh, I'm a student uh, in development studies here at the LSE um, basically I just wondered what your uh, opinion was on the issues of securitization, militarization, and the uh, reorganization of DFID to be oriented around the private sector. Sure, it seems to me they're more pressing issues than just uh, trying to reach a target of aid and before we need to make aid more effective in how it's implemented, um, which seems to me a very worrying development. Okay, thank you. Let me take a, a few questions together, if that's all right. The gentleman at the back first, on the far side there. Take three and then take three more. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Dako Oyewale. I used to be a student here. I studied social policy here in 2003. I used to be one of the diaspora members you referred to. Um, and I've since moved back home to Nigeria to work in the development sector as a policy advisor. Um, thank you very much for very uh, engaging speech. but. I wanted to raise three critical issues from my experience being here and then moving back to a recipient country around three critical areas. The first thing is that, yes, many countries are very eager to receive aid, but there are many grumblings that you don't hear at this other end um, where the aid comes from. The first question is around the issue of state sovereignty. In many developing countries, there's a feeling that there is a sort of uh, 
step back towards using aid to, perform, to pursue foreign policy objectives. And certain um, um, statements have been made that this current government might be moving towards see, um, linking um, international aid money to our security objectives. It will be interesting to hear your views on that. And second, lastly, you mentioned the issue of accountability. I think this is absolutely critical. But bearing in mind that a lot of the arrangements and agreements um, on that provide aid to developing countries are bilateral discussions between governments. Many civil society organizations feel that they're left out of either being involved in initializing, conceptualizing, or even monitoring and evaluating this aid. So a lot of money is coming into these countries. They don't know where it's going. They don't know how it's spent. How do you address, um, intend to address these issues? Thank you. Thank you. One third question just here, and then I'll... I'll yeah, I'm Martha Jean Baker. I'm an international vice president of Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which is an organization that uh, was founded in 1915 to look at root causes of war. So I was very interested to hear. Uh, I want to thank you for your comments and your talk about development aid being important to conflict prevention, because we talk in our organization about human security, not military security. And I, uh, I, so I think the cuts in general are misguided in this area because I think that they, they have the potential to lead to conflict. But I wanted to ask, um, before the uh, election, uh, DFID um, made a commitment well, that to, um, I think it was double the budget or at least significantly raise the budget for the new UN entity, UN Women, which and also uh, DFID has, been, has at least historically been very involved in the whole, um, whole dialogue around Security Council Resolution 1325, which has to do with women, peace, and security, and is, of course, I intimately involved with the kinds of things you're talking about. And I wondered whether or not, you know, what you were, you, your plans and your uh, were in terms of promoting these things. And just as one quick last comment, my, my proposal for Trident, which if cut would, of course, um, alleviate the needs for many of the other cuts, is that we, de is that we demobilize it all now, make, take, the, take the demobilized parts, turn them into a sculpture garden at the Olympic Park, each one labeled saying, by decommissioning this, we, we have paid for this and we have paid for that and teachers and schools and doctors etc etc thank you um, right um, one of the things that the government has uh, said is that they want to um, increase the amount of aid that goes to fragile and conflict affected states and I think that we have to look very carefully indeed at how this is going to work out in practice um, because a great many issues uh, are arisen there uh, and, and therefore I think that we do know that in conflict affected and fragile states there is some of the worst poverty um, and therefore in principle uh, it's not a bad thing, but we have to make sure that we don't see somehow a sort of siphoning off of um, aid money to, to military objectives. So I think we just have to look very clear-eyed at this uh, on a continuous basis. Um, I think as far as the private sector is concerned, I think that because uh, the question of 
um, development is so much uh, a part of the growth of private sector in developing countries that um, the, the work that is done through aid, for example, to support uh, the growth of legal systems, that actually helps the private sector develop and the private sector will no doubt, no doubt plays a part in that. So I think, again, it's, it's not possible to take a kind of ideological position and say, you know, this is kind of a bad thing, this shift of emphasis. I think you have to look uh, case by case um, at it. Um, as far as the question of the viewpoint from the, the country which is receiving aid, um, I mean, as you know, we broke... Uh, the linkage of, between aid and trade and actually, you know, banned that from, from being uh, the case, you know, and made it that it must be poverty alleviate, alleviation and the interests of the developing country that prevail, not our own uh, interests. Um, but I think that your point about um, leaving out civil society is a very, very important one because what can actually happen if civil society... Um, is left out I mean it can work both ways I mean we I met recently uh, a woman member of parliament from Afghanistan who was saying that money is given directly uh, to women's organizations in Afghanistan and she as a woman member of parliament where we are trying to support the constitution that sees women properly represented um, and their rights protected in Afghanistan. She is, and her colleagues are going to be very, very important indeed. But when money is given to civil society organizations and community groups, without she has any input, or parliamentarians have any input into that money being given, it's like, well, what do they amount to? They account for nothing. Actually, uh, nobody even consults them or tells them where the aid is going. So I think that... Um, that, that um, actually there needs to be accountability and inclusion both um, of governments appropriately um, and, and civil society and uh, we have to make sure that we don't undermine long-term development objectives by actually deciding that we know exactly the group or organisation that needs the money and we're going to give it to them because that therefore renders... Uh, um, you know, less important in people's eyes, the institutions, whether it's local government, um, state government or federal government, to which ultimately they need, they need to look. Um, and that was something that was in my visits to Nigeria has very much um, been, been raised with me. Um, as far as the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom is concerned, I think that, you know, over the years you have done a huge amount to highlight the specific impact of conflict on women and, and, for example, highlighting that in some countries it is more dangerous to be a woman than to be a soldier and that actually where climate change makes it that women have to walk further to get water, then they are in greater danger as they have to go further and further uh, from their home. The, the, the agency that you're talking about, um, UN Women, I think is a very important development indeed. And, in, and indeed, um, Gordon Brown uh, and Hillary Clinton, uh, along with a great many uh, women from uh, the developing world, have been 
very material in pushing that forward. And when I met Ban Ki-moon, was it yesterday? I actually reinforced to him that it's really important for women all around the world in both developing and uh, developed countries to actually see that the UN sees them and that they have a role in the UN and that they can look to the UN to be on their side. And I think Michelle Bachelet, Bachelet who was the former president of Chile, who has become the first director of UN Women, is a very inspiring person to lead that. Because the reality is, as the Women's International League has on many occasions pointed out, is that world events and international affairs have largely been conducted by men um, and that to the extent that women have been involved in political activities, it's usually been closer to home, if at all. What we've got now is we've got in all countries, well, in most continent, in, in all continents and most countries, we have got now women in parliaments and women in governments, and therefore UN women can actually draw together the women from different countries of the world to actually back them what, up in what they're doing. Because ulti ultimately, for the, for the woman in a village in Nigeria, who is her best hope for the future? Her best hope for the future is the woman in the federal legislature who understands her life and who will fight for her. And we need to enable and empower those women. And I think that's what the UN agency is able to um, and, and must do. Um, and therefore, our commitment to make sure that it's properly funded, not only so it could do its work in New York, but that it has proper programs on the ground and can show how things are done is, um, is very important indeed. More questions. I have a gentleman Yes, my name is Mr. Bonf. I'm from Oxford Sustainable Development Enterprise. That is a group of research institution dealing mainly with, develop, with development issues in developing countries mainly. My observation is in, in concerning your, let's say, uh, presentation is you have mentioned quite often the concept of uh, have uh, effectiveness aid to developing countries. I think this is. The, I think this, this type of policy has been even before. What is missing is the issue in relation with to have an intelligent strategy of development in developing countries. Show very good best practice where there is a growth. And I think we have to differentiate it between emergency and development. Personally, I am involved with European Union at eight. This is the most powerful, let's say, 300 billion euro they're spending in the next four or five years, you can imagine they, are, they don't have even a monitoring system. I say monitoring system to know where the money are going, where they go, how this is the impact. There is no evaluation system. We are still at primitive age, and the technology is there. You can do all this in a more, let's say, some, in a more let's say, innovative way where you can track the funds, how they go, where they go, and you can be more, let's say, accountable, and then don't waste or even the money. I think the implementation side is a big problem. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, hi. Thank you very much for an extremely interesting and engaging speech. Uh, Sorry, carry on, please. <laughs> 
My name is Maria, and I'm a student at UCL. Um, I study politics and security. And we keep talking about the effectiveness of aid and about the question whether aid exacerbates conflicts or hinders development or the other way around. Um, so I would like to ask you, how is the effectiveness of aid actually measured? Thank you. Can I take just two, two questions from this side first? The gentleman in the violet cardigan and then the... Uh, hi, um, I used to study economics, um, not here, um, and I'm, for my sins now I'm an accountant. Um, two questions. Um, first, um, why 0.7%? Why is that the optimal value? Why not 0.6% or 0.8%? Um, second question, um, when uh, Labour were in government, um, what did you do to ensure um, the increase in aid money was spent effectively? What mechanisms did you put in place? Hi, I'm Alicia London. I'm the country director of the Global Poverty Project. Um, my question's around public support for development here in Britain. Um, we've got the privilege every day of speaking to everyday people in schools, businesses, communities, right churches, right across the country um, about what's happening with development arts and much of what you've talked about today. Um, we find that one of the really interesting things people love is having the educational component of what's really going on so that they then ask what we can do. Do we, do we work with one? Do we write to Vince Cable about the Bribery Act? Um, but one of the things the new government has done is cut the Development Education Fund um, that used to exist for organisations like us and Oxfam and various others to make sure that the public understand what's going on so that they can get behind the campaigns like the support, the 2013 0.7. I'm just curious on what's your view on that, um, scaling back on development education here when there are budget cuts? Um, and how important do you think that is in building public support for the things that we want to be doing moving forward? Thank you. Um, I think that the um, I think that the microphone was very close to your mouth, so I found it quite hard to um, uh, hear what what you were saying. But um, I think that you know you were raising the issue of the. Um, effectiveness or otherwise of um, the EU funds um, and how it's monitored. Well, there is a strategy which is taken forward by uh, which is you know, the joint uh, responsibility of all the member states in the EU and the EU's uh, development aid budget is the biggest um, development aid budget in the world, dwarfing uh, the, the World Bank's um, uh, development aid, aid. And obviously, um, when it comes to, uh, to, to putting money into development aid, there is always a risk and I think that we need to have a sort of intelligent discussion about risk because I don't for a, for, um, for a moment think that we should be cavalier about what any precious pound of money put in actually achieves. We can't be wasting any in terms of the need for the aid and also in terms of keeping faith with the fact that it's actually been given. But what we have got to be careful to do is two things, I think. Firstly, 
is that we shouldn't set so much bureaucracy around the monitoring, which is actually, when all's said and done, not always a very exact science. I don't think that we should do more monitoring than we do aid delivering. We just have to make sure that we've got the right balance uh, between the two. And we are sometimes dealing with, you know, if you're putting aid into conflict-affected, fragile areas, you know, it is difficult to monitor it, um, and that has to be uh, recognized and, uh, and acknowledged. But the other question is um, whether we, we set, you know, if you wanted to be determined that every single bit of development aid that you gave had exactly the impact that you wanted it to do, you would never push the boundaries. You would never take any risks. You would only invest in absolute dead certs, and you would never have any, any progress in the way the development aid works. And also, I think we have to be quite careful, as well as not creating a complete aversion to risk, a complete bureaucratization of the whole situation in our quest for transparency, which is a, you know, a right quest, that we also don't set the bar impossibly high. Not everything that government does achieves its objective 100%, whether it's education, whether it's health, uh, whatever it is, that actually it's not all 100% effective. And we shouldn't set a higher bar for development aid than we are prepared to tolerate in other areas. I mean, this is probably a wrong statistic, but I heard on the radio somebody saying that 25% of prescriptions prescribed in the National Health Service were effective for the person that they were prescribed for, 25%. 75% not. Well, we don't say because 75% are not effective for that particular person, we'll scrap the whole lot. You know, so, so I think that we've got to have an... In we mustn't allow the demand for 100% effectiveness to become just another of the things that is put against the aid budget. Um, so I think we have to think about a careful, a careful balance here. Um, the, the other point is about how we, um, how we monitor. And I think that you know, it depends. It depends whether it's an immediate response you're looking for, like immediate numbers of vaccination, or whether or not you've got a longer-term situation, like how many children who've had the ability to be enrolled in school will ultimately be able to go on to secondary school and higher education. Um, there is quite a long uh, chain of, uh, of results out of investment in certain things and some things take a great length of time to build up and you can't take a snapshot and say at any one time this has or hasn't worked. If you look at women's empowerment and women's involvement uh, for example in political life and uh, in their own governance in local governments and in, in, in their own state and federal parliaments and you think of the development aid that has gone to support those institutions and their participation in those institutions. Well, you know, it took us 25 years in the good old UK, in the Mother of Parliaments, to go from 3% women to 20%. 
And at any one time, you might well have done a snapshot and thought we are going nowhere on this. But the point is, we were going somewhere, and therefore, um, how do you monitor aid? Well, it's a very important and difficult job, and I think it's not easily done if you have less, if you have fewer people working in DFID, where, which are called back office staff or admin, and actually have a great concentration of expertise which is admired worldwide in understanding these things and therefore I think that it would be short-termist to be saying that we will just do the front end of aid and we will not have any of the expertise differed to actually identify where the money should go and monitor it and I think that that is a danger uh, right, right here at the moment and I think um, I think that international cooperation, monitoring aid is very important indeed, international cooperation in actually delivering aid, but also on, 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 uh, on, on monitoring it. Did you say you were from the Poppy Project? Okay. Which one? Global oh, Global Poverty. I thought you said the Poppy Project. Sorry, this, it's, the, um, it's the microphones. Um, I think that, uh, that development education is, is very important indeed and actually there was a leaked list very early on in the government where they were actually um, identifying a whole load of things um, that they thought could be chopped without people worrying about it and that was you know right at the top of the list um, what's happened is the the new government have undertaken a 100% 360-degree review of both the bilateral um, aid projects and uh, multilateral aid spending. So they have reviewed every single penny that is spent by DFID in order to see whether it fits with the priorities they're setting forth and whether it's good value for money. And they're going to come out with that review uh, which will actually show whether they're going to be changing the balance or not between multilateral and bilateral aid, um, what actually, uh, whether they're changing the balance between different countries. So that is going to be coming out. Andrew Mitchell has said that it's going to be by the end of February. So there or thereabouts, we will know the answer to what has actually uh, found its way um, into uh, their future program of their complete review of all their spending. But the other thing that I would say about this 31% increase um, and the two-year freeze is that it limits the scope for things other than multilateral aid because actually there is a capacity issue. If you've had an aid freeze for two years and then suddenly you give it a 31%, it's like a glut after a drought and therefore you've you haven't got the capacity to actually deliver such a great big 31% increase and therefore the likelihood is that it's more likely to be done through the World Bank, through multilateral aid who have got that macro capacity. So one of the things about the freeze and then the 31% is that I think it actually ironically undermines the government's ability to do what it says it likes best which is bilateral aid it'll actually end itself up really if it's going to meet that pledge 
simply having to give the money to the World Bank to spend because we won't be able to have the capacity to spend it all in one go, 31% in 2013. I'd be interested to know from people here on a show of hands, who thinks that I'm, be who thinks that I'm being unnecessarily anxious about this and I should sleep easy in my bed and actually 31% in 2013, it's in the manifesto, and I should stop being so paranoid and rude about the government, and that I should actually know and be fully, fully confident that if Andrew Mitchell and David Cameron says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Who actually believes that that is, that I am barking up the wrong tree here and should get a different sort of life? Um, Quick show who of thinks hands. that? If you think yes. that I'm completely being paranoid and it's all fine. Yes to paranoia. Hands up. No one? So, who thinks that actually there is a worry about this and we really ought to be getting our act together and getting the keep the 0.7% 2013 up onto the agenda just in case? Quick show of hands. Right, okay. Well, actually, the point is that we can actually make a difference on that. Whether or not that promise is kept is not in tablets of stone, it's what we do about it. So really, I would say, you know, if you're in an agency, get that agency to be part of the Keep the Promise campaign. You know, if you're in a student's union, get your student's union to sign up to the Keep the Promise campaign. You know, if you're a, a, a Labour Party person, just join up uh, with the Labour campaign for international development. And if you're not a Labour Party person, we've got vacancies. You can still, <laughs> you can still join. Two very quick questions. We have to bring this to a close. So the gentleman at the back there has been waiting kindly. I'm afraid there's going to be the woman at the front here. And I know I'm going to disappoint a lot of the rest of you, but please bear with me. So the gentleman at the back first. And then, and Hi. Please make your questions brief. Thank you. Um, on that note, uh, my name is Richard Surinjogi. I'm an executive member from the Labour Campaign for International Development. <laughs> <laughs> and, right. Question quick. And, <laughs> and I look forward to our event with Harriet on the 16th and the rest of the Shadow International Development team. Uh, my question is, with all the Daily Mail-esque headlines saying things like, charity starts at home, how do we garner public support and educate them that tackling global inequality is not charity, but rights? Thank you, Harriet. Last question over here. Um, my name's Adisa Tijani, and I studied international development in the University of East Anglia. I've had the privilege of going to meet, I've met Bill Gates, I've met Bono, I was at his Living Proof presentation, and I work, for, I work within philanthropy now after graduating, and I'm going back to my university next week to talk about working in international development. How do you think you can continue to inspire young people like myself that it is actually worth getting into this field and tackling these issues when there's so many funding cuts and it's like, should we really get into this sort of field even though we are passionate about it? And I am, as I run my own international development blog, but how do you get organisations to recognise different efforts that people are making if the media aren't focusing on it and getting the spotlight on that is so hard? Okay, thank you for that. Quick answers. Well, it, 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 it definitely uh, can be done. I mean, when, when we were first, uh, well, when I, you know, when we weren't in government and when we were in opposition and we were building up and working along for public support for this 0.7% uh, 
uh, pledge, we were in a situation where the hospital, King's College Hospital, you know, if you were in A&E, you could spend more than 24 hours on a trolley and be waiting to be treated. And where at Guy's Hospital, I remember one of the consultant cardiac surgeons showed me a list of all my constituents, which is his operating list, pinned up on the wall. And he said, and there were all their names and addresses, and he said, one-fifth of this will be dead before I get to operate on them because of the waiting list. So the pressure for actually public spending then was absolutely acute. And I mean, there was many classrooms that had more than 30 kids in them and buckets catching the drips from the uh, roofs that were leaking. This is a bit of a wander down memory lane which would go back beyond many of you. But that was a time when there was an absolute acute concern about the level of public investment in transport, in social care, in the health services and education. And we nevertheless argued passionately for international development at the same time. So it's not an argument that can only be made in good times. But I think what's happened over the last 13 years is that because we've had such a strong commitment from Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, who whether it was unpopular or popular, they were going to do it anyway because they were absolutely committed to it, kind of in a vanguardist way. They weren't looking over their shoulder working out whether anybody agreed with them. They were determined to do it. And the aid agencies, therefore, all they had to do is work with this government that was passionately committed to it. And therefore, there was nothing to fight about. We didn't have to fight the cause because the cause was being led right from the front, right at the top from government. And we've got to relearn about campaigning to make sure that we remobilize public opinion in order to sustain the government to deliver and keep that continuum going. But if we could do it when people were dying on waiting lists, well then we can do it again. And um, the Labour campaign for, for international development is going to be very, very um, important in that. Um, and so are Bill Gates and Melinda Gates and the One campaign because you know, they are not government but they work with supporting major important projects and they also carry the message all the time that aid works and I think that's one of the most significant things that they do. They challenge government uh, when government lacks the conviction that aid works and they actually show what their foundation um, has, has done and indeed I went to their excellent launch which you were probably at and the lift doors open, and I got in the lift, and who was in the lift but Bono. So that's my second name drop after <laughs> Banky Moon. Okay, I need to bring this uh, session to a close. Can I thank the audience, especially those of you who didn't get to ask your questions? I know there were many more of you who would happily detain Harriet here um, late on into the evening, but we do have to stop. Um, I'd like to make one brief announcement. Um, we have another session, British Government at LSE session, tomorrow evening, in which we're going to be discussing the comprehensive spending review. To cut or not to cut? Is that the question? And that's a panel session that has academics from this wonderful place, the LSE, and also Martin Wolf from the Financial Times. But finally, I'd like to thank Harriet for her very interesting lecture and for the discussion tonight. And I hope you'll enjoy it with me. Thank you.